Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with Ronnie Malley, a Palestinian-American multi-instrumentalist who believes in the transformative power of music. He's a master of percussion and rhythm, a guitarist and oud player, and a keyboardist just to name a few of his skills. He's a versatile songwriter, a composer, an experienced performer, and a recording engineer. Ronnie's knowledge within the realm of music and sound itself is remarkable and founded on principles of both science and art. As brilliant of a musician that Ronnie may be, he's more than just a musician. He is an educator, a mentor, and a visionary for a more harmonious world. Specifically, Ronnie works as a music educator within the Chicago school system. He takes joy in helping students discover themselves through music. A strong believer in global citizenry, Ronnie believes that in order for the world to become a better place for all, we should embrace cultural diversity across the board. In essence, he believes that we should focus on the beauty within our differences rather than focusing on the differences themselves. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we discuss the similarities between music and language, how to reconcile traditional views of success by following your heart and doing what you love, where rhythm lives in the body, and the concept of global citizenry and how it cultivates diversity while promoting a more harmonious world. I truly enjoy this fascinating conversation with Ronnie, and I hope you do too. So without further ado, I bring you Ronnie Malley. Ronnie Malley, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, sir? Ronnie, it's a delight to have you here, and I'm excited to kind of speak with you about the work that you do and how you kind of discovered your work, or as some people say, how your work discovered you, and kind of unpack all that. But what would be a really great way to kind of start the conversation is to ask you, to the best ability in your own words, how would you describe who you are? Uh, well, first and foremost, I suppose I'm a musician. <laughs> that has been pretty much my life since I was a kid. I'm a first-generation Palestinian-American. I grew up in a Muslim household, uh, but it was really music that took the forefront in my life. Though uh, I was fortunate to be raised with my grandparents, so we spoke Arabic at home. It was basically my maternal language in addition to English. My father was a musician, and he introduced us to music early on in life. So those things, all those three things came to head really uh, together. So my music career, my background as a Muslim and uh, as a Palestinian, all of those things really took part in, in who I became in my life. At first, I started off as a musician, and I would have never thought I'd be doing some of the things that I've done <laughs> in the past uh, many years. But when you stick with something long enough, I suppose, you know, it works. Yeah, I really appreciate that nuanced response in terms of providing all that color to this painting. I'm kind of curious to know, as it pertains to your understanding of music and how your family lineage and your background kind of informed your understanding of music, how did your father kind of introduce you to music? Was it as simple as turning on music and telling you to like sit down and kind of pay attention to it? Did it take a form of, you know, a musical instrument per se? Like help us understand how it was introduced to you by your father. Well, he had instruments basically strewn about all over the house. And uh, my brother, who's also a musician, we would basically um, just pick up whatever <laughs> instrument appealed to us. And uh, I would do that very often with percussion because he's a percussionist. And so it was mainly drums that were all around the house. And my brother turned into a very amazing percussionist, uh, professional as well. 
And uh, I started picking up, you know, various percussion instruments in the house. And when he started to see that I was getting good at it, he said, uh, okay, well, you know, we'll start doing this thing. And he'd take us to where he worked. Uh, He had a club with his band and uh, they would take us there on weekends, uh, my brother and I. And just seeing it and meeting his friends, this is a time, of course, you know, before any internet. So the way you experienced things was in real life. And um, that was really a profound effect on us because um, my dad kept us close. And a majority of our friends, my brother and I, even from a young age, were his friends. So (laughs) most of our friends were these adult musicians, but who we would really relate to, you know, and and some became very good mentors for us, uh, particularly with music. So one day I just kind of looked at my dad and I said, you know, I I know I love percussion and we all play percussion, but one of us has to play melody in this family. (laughs) And... uh, so I really wanted to play the guitar. I, I actually thought about like, what, what instrument should I play if I'm not playing, you know, drums? At first I picked up the bass, which I, I loved, but I wanted something a little bit more melodic so I can play some more stuff. And um, it was around that time also that my cousins gave my brother and I both a healthy dose of rock and roll. <laughs> a lot of rock and roll. That actually, believe it or not, informed me a lot more than the Middle Eastern music right away. And so that's what I started off on. And it wasn't until maybe I was maybe 12 years old and one day my father's friend, who's a uh, master musician, he's from Tunisia, and uh, he saw me walking in with my guitar and he was just like, so you play guitar, come here, come here, kid, I want to see what you play. And uh, so I said, okay. And he said, play this. And he just kind of hummed something. He's la, 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 la. And I thought, um, I know like three chords. (laughs) I was learning Guns N' Roses' Sweet Child of Mine at the time. And uh, so I go in, you know, on this and I'm like, I'm trying to figure it out. And eventually I figured out what melody he's singing. Then he turns to my dad and he says, uh, no, they must play Arabic music. And I thought, sure, man. Yeah, like in two years or whatever, I'm going to go back in and learn some Iron Maiden or Guns N' Roses (laughs) right now. And, uh, well, unbeknownst to me, he would come two weeks later and uh, he told my brother and I, he's like, uh, all right, put on something nice, uh, bring your guitar and bring your amplifier. You're coming with me. And he took us to uh, a wedding that he was playing at and put us on stage that entire wedding. (laughs) And I was just like, well, there's all the stage fright gone. I didn't know one song, but the one thing I did have was rhythm. So I did know what the rhythms were and I was able to, you know, keep along that way. And that became pretty much my experience with Middle Eastern music, especially for a very long time. You know, the the most profound moment really was we were driving around and my dad, God bless him, he would endure us listening to heavy rock. And uh, I think we were listening to something like Slayer on on the radio and uh, it finished. He endured it and he's like... I know you like this, but here, try this. And he put on a cassette tape of the Egyptian crooner, Abdul Halim Hafels. And he says, listen to it, it has guitar on it. And I was sold. I heard, you know, this crazy guitar sound going with a full orchestra and violins. It hadn't been anything I'd ever heard before. I mean, this is stuff that was happening in the 60s where you got guitar with violins and everything. And I was sold. Uh, and that was our portal and from then on with a family band we played uh, I eventually graduated to play keys keyboards and and piano and everything else with the band 
but we played for the next 15 years um weddings festivals with some major stars that would come from overseas um because they couldn't afford to bring their whole band and we would be the pickup group that's a great story so let's unpack this one thing that you shared that i think is really curious what is it about rock and roll that made you feel like it spoke to you what made it feel like it empowered you I ask you this because I think this is something that happens to a lot of young, especially young men. Help me understand what was really attractive about rock and roll for you in your musical, you know, lived experience. Uh, it, it was, you know, a lot of empowerment, young angst. A lot of music wasn't readily available like it is today. You couldn't just go download music. You had to go buy it uh, or find it or listen to it. In many ways, your identity was tied to the music that you listened to, very much so. I mean, I, I liked everything because I was into music. I mean, I remember when NWA's album came out, you know, I remember when uh, Biggie's album came out. But at the same time, I was listening to Motley Crue, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest. And the area that I grew up in was still not heavily influenced by Middle Easterners. They were still a little bit more in the south side of Chicago. So a lot of the people around me, especially the the youngsters, they were all listening to either rock and roll, like rock and roll, not mainstream, because you weren't even hearing that stuff on the radio yet. And what was on the mainstream was closer to being like new kids on the block, you know, these boy bands kind of thing. And I, I have to tell you, I despise that. <laughs> I did not like the mainstream at, at all. And, you know, when it was heavy and it was like rock and roll, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, I just, and I picked up the guitar. I just, you felt the power in it. You felt that your energy can be released in such a way. And it was a, it was definitely a release. The one thing that was really unique about it, though, is I, I'd listen to it and something just beckoned to me saying like, you know, there's something weirdly Middle Eastern to some of this. And and there was uh, because some of the scales and the riffs and, and the music that they were playing, um, particularly like a group like, you know, the famous group Metallica, right? And when I started listening to Middle Eastern music, I would hear the same scales in, in that music. How interesting. And so it was a weird gateway into <laughs> Middle Eastern music. Rock really defined me because in, in many ways, I was also, my brother and I both, because he played drums and, you know, Middle Eastern percussion too. And we were both still kind of coming into our own to identify our identity. Very few people at that time, this is before the Oslo Accords, had even heard of Palestine or a Palestinian. Uh, yet here we are trying to embrace that identity, yet at the same time live with this dichotomy of being really American. So much so we're playing American music with other Americans and, and that kind of thing. Um, so it was, it was very unique. Rock and roll was definitely a, a, an important factor in my life. So I really like this idea of it being a gateway. Can we play off of that? And I'm curious, how did you kind of identify with it? And how did it kind of speak to you and in, in your lineage and where you came from? And help me understand like what surfaces as it pertains to this idea of it being a gateway. I came from a unique family background, too, that my family and a lot of people from my dad's town, which is called Betunia, uh, it's in Palestine, it's in the West Bank. Many of them came to Chicago as far back as 1893. 
some of my own family members served in the U.S. Uh, military service in World War One, World War Two, Vietnam. You know, it was it was interesting because for all purposes, we felt American. Um, but we practiced our culture in in that identity that we did. I mean, my grandfather and his friends were some of the first people to build a, a mosque in the southwest suburbs in Chicago, uh, in Bridgeview, actually. And uh, that became really more or less a community center for us. It's where I went to learn Arabic. Uh, and for the most part, it was actually secular in that way. But it was a place of worship for everyone. And so it wasn't like we had to brand ourselves from this identity because the level of prejudice, while it might have been there in society in general, wasn't really mainstream as you know we saw it post 9-11, for example. Yeah. So how did your sense of identity change? How did your understanding of who you were in your community change? And how did your sense of identity in relationship to others change as they perceived you as it pertains to um, 9-11? It's just sometimes in the American sphere, I'd say pre-9-11, America had a blissful ignorance. Post-9-11, it had a malicious one. I remember even before they announced who was responsible for this, coming back home a couple nights later and seeing with my own eyes, literally people marching on the mosque with torches. And I just remember them pulling in police from all of the, the villages around Bridgeview uh, at the time just to prevent people from ostensibly burning down the mosque, you know. That was definitely jolting. And that was the first time in my life that I had to really understand my identity for myself, but also what it relates to to others. You know, I had family and friends who come in and say, don't go to the club, don't go to that bar, don't play don't play the rock and roll thing. You know, they're, they're out to get us right now. And that was definitely a pinnacle moment in my life where I said, you know what? I'm also American. I, I have to go out there and represent my people as the American as well. And it's really when my brother and I started to say, you know, let's start even fusing some of our Middle Eastern tradition in the rock and roll that we're doing. Let's go up there and be unapologetic about it. We're up there playing, you know, I, I remember hearing a lot of vitriol, a lot of epithets, you know, coming our way uh, growing up with that too. One guy came up to us, though, and he's like, I love what you're doing. Keep doing it. You guys don't understand how good this is, you know, what you're doing. And that was like the wake up call at the moment. You know, I thought, hey, if I'm going to give people the alternative narrative that they see and hear on television, we have to be out there. We can't hide in the shadows with this. I'm going to be out here. I'm going to be unapologetic about this. And our culture is what represents us, not a few people who commit dastardly deeds or even orthodox people. We're not a monolith. Yeah, I think that's right. We aren't a monolith. The Muslim world is not a monolith. And what's really interesting about the attacks of 9-11 is that it made being from the greater Middle East and our sense of identity went from being who I was or who we were in relation to our family to who we were in relation to the rest of the world and how the rest of the world perceived us and or made judgments on us and behalf of us, right? Pretty much. Uh, you, you pretty much hit the nail on the head because it was like, okay, I'm, I'll live up to my parents' expectations. I'm going to live up to what they want us to be. And we have a responsibility as first-generation immigrant or as them as immigrants. I remember even back when the first Iraq war, the Persian Gulf War happened, you know, I was what, 14 or something. 
and people just, so tell us, what do you think? What's happening over there? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. You know, all I could see was, you know, it's in a weird way too, and it's just a small tangent, but up until that point, till the first Persian Gulf War, I thought, you know, maybe I'll join the military too, just like many of my family members did. I, I really admired my second cousin who was a chief master sergeant in the Air Force, rode on Air Force One with Reagan, did diplomatic missions with him. And I thought, boy, I, I'd love to do that. And the Air Force sounds great. But after the Persian Gulf War, it it really opened my eyes up to politics, to what America was, to, you know, w- what I wanted to do. It got to a point where before 9-11, I thought to my dad, I said, hey, you know what? I want to go live overseas. I don't want to live here anymore. I want to go to a place that it's my people and, and I can learn the music of my culture. And in hindsight, you know, he had the foresight, so to speak, to say that, well, we'll see, little by little, you know, we went to visit. He's like, just, uh, we'll see what happens. And I'm glad he did because, you know, it it wouldn't have been the ideal situation. I see what we're doing as a a force of good, uh, a positive. We needed to change the narrative. Right, exactly. It's about contributing to the narrative about who we are and about the things that we value and about the stories not only that we tell ourselves, but the stories that are told about us, whether it's being a Palestinian American, an Afghan American, a Muslim American, it's really important to have a voice in this whole space to better understand who we are and how people perceive us. You know, I think it's also important to kind of just make a note here that the United States is such a special place. It's such a wonderful, wonderful place. If people believe in the fact that we as a country ought to be unified in our diversity. And it's amazing to me that this fact and the foundations of this country and that sentiment is often either forgotten, neglected, or just ignored. In my teens, I think, and and early before, just before being, being a teenager, I watched a copious amount of American television, but not just any show. I would watch All in the Family. I watched Sanford and Son, Good Times, a lot of the shows that dealt with, you know, whether it was by choice, what I just liked, or because I felt like sometimes I was being discriminated against. I mean, I've been called all kinds of things by the kids in the neighborhood growing up, uh, not even knowing what some of it meant. But then starting to see that part of America that I had thought of not really existing. I mean, I always believed and still do to a certain extent that America is a meritocracy. You can really get ahead. I saw it in my family members. I saw it in other people. But shows like that have become quite relevant, even more so now post 9-11, when I saw the underlying, the seething kind of sentiment that, wait a minute, was that person always looking at me like this? Or was this person always looking at me like this? And, you know, suddenly Ron Malley became Ronnie Malley. I'm going to go by my full first, full name. If I had to write it, Rani Khalil Maali, I'll do it. And I thought of it as being more American by being more of who I am in my culture. Yeah, the way I kind of think about 9-11 is that that event and people's understanding of who I was made me embrace the person I had always been, if that resonates at all with you. For sure. You know, it's interesting. I think about my life and I think about it in two parts, pre-9-11 and post-9-11. My sense of identity as it pertained to my pre-9-11 notion of who I was, was I was Bach. I was in a punk band. I played guitar and I played soccer and I tried to get along with everybody. I wanted to fit in. And post-9-11, my sense of identity changed to 
My name is Bak Tashahadi. I'm from Afghanistan. Right. It was a, a very different sense of understanding who I was in relation to the world, as well as how the world kind of saw me. It was a space that almost that I almost had to step into because it was expected of me. Indeed, you know, even to some of my own bandmates and and to others, vitriol that came out or the sound bites that they'd hear on CNN or wherever it was, you know, they'd regurgitate it and not really realize like, hey, that's offensive. And I started to see what had happened, uh, particularly, you know, after reconstruction with African-Americans, the archetypal uh, characterization, I started to see that appear and surface, but for my own people, for myself. I remember being in a band with somebody, it was a larger band, and you know, he just kind of walked by and, and just joking is like, you better watch it, you Muslim, <laughs> something to this effect. And I know he was joking, but I'm like, why would you think that that's a pejorative? It really opened my eyes then to anticipate what we would prepare for in the past four years, this blind ignorance of, uh, of people. You know, I, sometimes we are innately just waiting to hate on somebody and we, we happen to be the flavor of, of the the year. <laughs> and it also kind of disturbed me to see to what extent that people didn't see the difference, the diversity that I saw. It's like, you know, there are Arab Christians, you know, there are uh, Arab Jews that were not all Muslim. Uh, and not that it was even identified with Islam, but even if I wanted to call myself an atheist, they would still look at me as a Muslim coming from the Middle East, no matter what. And I'm, I'm not. I'm just saying, though, it, it wouldn't matter how I saw myself. They started to see me in one other way. I'm going to speak to who I am. I started teaching um, more music, and I started to work uh, in the Chicago Public Schools uh, as a teaching artist. It was about 2008, 2009. They started a, a new initiative at Chicago Public Schools called the Arabic Language Initiative. And so at several select Chicago Public Schools, they started teaching the Arabic language. And I got a call from somebody who I'd find out later was actually a second cousin of mine. She was on the city council and she was also in Chicago Public Schools for a long time and asked if I could create a cultural program to complement the language uh, classes that they were offering. So I did. I did music, we did calligraphy, we did dance, we did theater. And I remember one student in particular, this young boy who was in ROTC at the time. And I had him from when he was a freshman. And He'd come in his uniform and he wanted to play uh, percussion in the ensemble that I had for the after school students who participated. This guy stuck with it for the next four years and I saw him grow into being a good musician. So good that sometimes I would even take him out on gigs with me. He became so good, he started speaking Arabic. He interned with the Qatar Foundation. African-American kid from Englewood, the south side of Chicago. You know, very low-income class area, but filled with bright, very woke. This kid goes on to becoming a, a reporter, a journalist. He went to Columbia, and we keep in touch to this day. But he'd tell me stories about how he you know, met this Arab family on a, a tour bus when he was doing a tour guide gig for a little while, and how he started speaking to them in Arabic. And, and the woman visiting just came and hugged him. She's like, I, I didn't think Americans would know any of this. And he'd go on to tell me on how he would have intelligent, intellectual debates with people because he understood our culture. Because I made time talk to him about it through music. And that is exactly when I knew that this is the right path right now. Share what you know, what you have with sincerity, ikhlas. And uh, it's surprising how many lives you can impact. 
I think that's right. I think a sense of authenticity takes a lot of courage to essentially reveal and embrace. But once you do, it's quite literally the most important thing that you can essentially offer. Of yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd like to take this moment and fold this part of the conversation back into music. In particular, I'd like to talk about the importance of rhythm. And I think in the beginning of the conversation, you talked about how rhythm was the thing that allowed you to pick up multiple instruments and learn multiple instruments. So I think it'd be really great to kind of hear your perspective on where rhythm lives in the body and where it comes from and why we are so attracted to it. What do you think? You know, you literally start to incorporate sounds as early as in the womb. I mean, one of the ways that we even can tell that a baby's in there today is, you know, with an ultrasound, you know, a sonogram. I mean, that is sound, that's vibration. So when people are listening to music of whatever, culture, heritage, uh, it's literally going into your bones. <laughs> For me, that would start there in the whole being. When we come out, obviously our ears help us from that perspective, the sense. But to understand rhythms, the first rhythms we really begin to understand, uh, some might think are, you know, tapping or playing or hearing, things like that. But in reality, actually, it's language. Language is a rhythm. Indian music, they're using the bowls. You know, South Asian music in general, not just Indian, actually. They're using syllables to, to teach literally syllables from the alphabet to teach a percussive instrument. And before you can even play that instrument, you have to learn it through the language. You have to be able to do it in order to play it. You have to be able to say it. And uh, we had a very similar type of understanding in Middle Eastern music where we use syllables. And it stuck with me because that was one of the few ways that I really understood rhythm in general is that I would tell students, you know, if you really want to play this music, first of all, learn these rhythms because these aren't just haphazard random rhythms. These are indigenous rhythms to people who have played them for centuries. And it's such a direct part of their culture and their language. So music, yes, is a universal language in that anybody who has ears can experience it, but it has different meaning to many different people. So it's got a lot of dialects. I really appreciate that. I think as it pertains to music being a universal language, I think music will be our saving grace one day when aliens come to planet Earth. <laughs> I agree. And I say this comically, but I also have, there is some seriousness to it. I, and I mean this by saying music, I believe, is the most sophisticated art form that we have essentially found in the world. I don't think we invented it. I think we found music. Absolutely. You know, it's funny because I, there was a stint in my life where I, I wasn't the most practicing Muslim. I had been reared or, or society had told me up until then that, you know, these things are mutually exclusive. You can either be this vagabond and you're going to ruin your life kind of thing, or you can be a pious Orthodox person and go make a lot of money. <laughs> and I have to reconcile all of that because why, why is it then when I play music, I feel like my soul is elevated. I feel like my spirit is lifted. I see the same in others. You know, there's something more to this. And indeed, you know, and my philosophical studies of music later on in my life to discover what it really means to me, uh, I discovered a, an exceptional book by Tazarat Inyat Khan. 
the book was called The Mysticism of Sound and Music. And just before him, studying more about the psychoacoustic, the philosophical implications, you know, even in the book of Genesis, if God spoke and the universe began, that speaking is vibration. It set everything into motion. And then later you start to understand the acoustical properties. As a recording engineer myself right now, you know, I'm dealing with scientific principles of sound on a daily basis. And, and then I discover in the 13th century, other people were thinking about this too. There was the, uh, the Safa brothers, Ikhwan Safa, who wrote from an Islamic perspective, spiritual understanding of this, as well as an artistic and scientific understanding. And so that, that led me to start thinking like, okay, how can now I bring this back to my own community? You know, I would get people saying, you know, Rani, music is haram. And one day, you know, you're going to have to stop. I just looked at him. I said, you might as well then kill me. I mean, why would I stop something that that is the essence of my being? And, and why wouldn't you understand that, you know, to be so? And the same person I was talking to, I said, I'm speaking to you in Arabic now because of music. I understand my culture because of music. I, I have respect and tolerance for others because of music. And And yes, it's a language, man. It's an Every single thing. Uh, I mean, the planets each revolve in a certain frequency and have their own note. I mean, if, if Earth revolves in like B and a black hole's in B flat, imagine every single heavenly body out there in the cosmos to its own harmony. It's, uh, it's a lot. And yes, uh, music is, is found by us. We are just, you know, within our scope of 20 to 20,000 hertz, <laughs> able to understand the capacity of that. You know, one thing that opened my eyes to it was a simple line that I read that the term music, you know, comes from the Greek term muse, like the nine muses. However, in, in the East in general and other cultures, they didn't call it music. In Arabic, Islamic philosophy and, and science and jurisprudence in general, they called it hendeset esolt, meaning like the construct or the engineering of sound. And, and that was the approach that they had. Music was not just an art, it was a science. Yeah. No, that's it's wonderful. And I think that's absolutely true. And there is something really special about the universality, about how music really just speaks to your soul. If a certain piece speaks to you, it doesn't matter who the creator of that piece is, what they look like, where they come from. And, and in that space, there is room for bridge building, understanding, healing, and a sense of coming together to realize that, you know, we are more similar than we are different. Absolutely. And that, that's been a mantra for a long time myself. I want to embrace our differences and celebrate our similarities. And we're all human. You know, humans don't think that much different from each other. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So Ronnie, as we kind of come to a close here, how would you go about answering the question, what is your message for the world? You know, um, as somebody who tried to go live in their ancestral homeland, the irony with an American passport and who thought that, you know, I can go there, but I didn't have that homeland. I mean, I have a home there. I have a land, but it's not like I can just pick up and go live there. You know, it's not so easily, which hurt for a little while until I started to realize, you know what? Music has taught me one thing. I've traveled all over the world, you know, through music and everything. And I realized that what's more important to foster is global citizenry. We are all on this globe. I know it sounds lofty. I know it sounds like it's a cliche, uh, 
But it's true. And we need to all embrace that now more than ever. I think the quicker that we understand that and we can supersede these very shallow and superficial prejudices that we have, the faster that we can actually fast track rectifying and, and creating a better world. You know, I have two children. I, I have to have hope, first of all. And I want to raise them to understand that, you know, in the same way that my mom said, you know, whoever comes to you in, in peace or in, in a sense, meaning that never judge anybody for, for where they're from or anything like that. Foster the sense of global citizenry. Because all of these lines that we see on maps today, somebody sat in a boardroom and drew them up for us to fight over. That's the message I, I, I hope to have everyone in the world embrace at some point. That's wonderful. Ronnie Malley, thank you for um, the work that you do and thank you for being the light in the darkness. Hey, thank you. I really appreciate it, Bach. I, I appreciate you having me on the show. I look forward to hearing it. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi. Digital marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi and theme music by Kais Esaud. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation Group. In this group, we discuss topics related to the human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support, and see you next time.